Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director of the Long Now Foundation. Today's talk focuses on a new book by John Markoff that traces the life and story of Stuart Brand, one of the founders of Long Now, as well as the Whole Earth Catalog, The Well, Revive and Restore, and many more movements and projects. While parts of Stuart's story have been told by a number of writers, this book is the first biography solely devoted to him. John Markoff has been a formidable journalist on technology and the stories behind it for all of his career. Over the past four decades, he's covered the tech world in publications ranging from the New York Times to Byte Magazine. John's biography of Stuart, called Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand, is out now. Before we get into John's retelling of those many lives, a quick reminder. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit and is entirely supported by donors and members like you. If you're already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of the Long Now Foundation and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to sign up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. For this talk, John will begin with a short presentation of some of the most interesting artifacts and photographs he found while researching the book. You can see these photos in the video version of the seminar on YouTube. After that, he'll be joined by me, as well as Stuart himself, for a wide-ranging conversation on Stuart's life and legacy. But first, let's hear from John Markoff. So, I have the dubious task tonight of introducing Stuart to the one audience in the world who completely does not need to be introduced to Stuart, which is kind of... But I did think it'd be fun to share with you just a few of my favorite documents. So this by far is my favorite. Stuart, as a young photographer in 1964, shares his portfolio with Ansel Adams. And I think that if I got this kind of an endorsement from Ansel Adams, I might have become a photographer. But Stuart was, was pulled in a lot of different directions, and so that's not the way it, it happened. Outdoor Life magazine published this in 1946, and Stuart, as a young boy, took this pledge shortly thereafter. All these years later, he can still recite this from memory, and I think this is the through line through Stuart's life that pulls all those disparate threads together. Stuart's parents, Arthur Bob Brand and Julia Morley Brand, if you want to understand where Stuart's coming from, you need to think about Higgins Lake, which was where a group of closely interconnected families summered together, um, the Brands, the Morleys, the Burroughs, and the Bernards. And those interwoven families spent each summer in an encampment at, at, at Higgins Lake, and, and Stuart basically was able to have what he calls as a free-range childhood, and I think that better uh, shapes him. This is the family home in Rockford. And one of the first things Stuart told me is he thought he had an upper-class background. And clearly the families in Michigan, from Saginaw, were upper-class. But in this case, I think it's much more nuanced. To my eyes, that home was a solidly middle-class home. And the family bought some property upstream on the Rock River, and the plan was to eventually build their own grand home, but that home was never built because the priorities of the Brand family were education. I think this is my favorite picture. This is uh, a phone booth in his dormitory at Stanford in 1957. Down in the corner, you can see some resistors, which is how you got free phone calls. This was a community that was known as the phone freak community, which preceded the hackers community, and of course, Stuart was there. On a photo assignment, Stuart's 
favorite period in the, in the military was his time spent as a photographer. Here's a meet and greet with John Kennedy. Stuart backpedaled furiously so Kennedy didn't shake his hand. He was supposed to be worth there talking to the wax. The man at the top of the photo is Jean Barda, a well-known collage artist in the Bay Area in the 50s and 60s, key to the beat community. And, you know, Stuart had discovered the beat community as a Stanford student in 1960. When he came back from the military, he found his way back to that community in part through Varda. Varda, of course, uh, was a close friend of Henry Miller. He's the one who introduced Henry Miller to Big Sur. Um, I think the other person, one of the other people in the boat is a man by the name of Jack Loeffler, who was a, a, came out of the beat community, helped Stuart create a multimedia project called American Needs Indians, ultimately settled in the Southwest as an environmental activist, became a very close friend of, of Edward Abbey's. And uh, he's actually the person who buried Ed, Edward Abbey. So um, you can't always trust documents. And one of the things I found is that uh, documents are essential, but they're not enough. And uh, one of the things that Stuart did, after coming back from the uh, army, one of the first things he did was basically took part in this remarkable experiment that took place over about four years, run by the International Foundation for Advanced Study. And they believed that they could prove that there was a connection between LSD and creativity. And Stuart was one of their first subjects. He spent about $500 for this experiment. And they took him through a very intense experience. So this is from Stuart's journal. Two oral uh, doses of LSD, and then a third dose by injection. Can you imagine that? Um, <laughs> Now, both Stuart and Jim Fadiman, who was one of the people who helped him as a guide, said that that wasn't accurate. Third person, Don Allen, who was also involved, said that they used LSD by injection to break down the very tough subjects. The tough nut to crack was Stuart in this case. They were trying to break his barriers down, apparently. So I was never able to get to the bottom of this, but the, the, the documentation is there. This is Stuart on assignment. Um, he was a young photographer on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation uh, in Oregon. He went up there and he came away with a different view of the world. He ran into an Indian culture that was very different than his own and he took things away that stayed with him through the whole earth catalog into today. This is probably the moment that the New Games movement started, early 60s again. Stuart was working on that multimedia project, Amer American Needs Indians, and he saw these young kids in the Sierras at a California Indian festival playing a kind of game he didn't see in middle-class white culture. Um, the, there were no gender boundaries, there were no winners, no losers, and it came to fruition about a decade later. This is actually my, my, one of my favorite photos of, of all. It sort of sums up San Francisco in the 50s and 60s in one picture. Stewart's talking to Ken Kesey, who's in the blue jacket. That's the prankster bus further, and Neil Cassidy is leaning out of the bus. And I think the significant thing here is that Cassidy and, and, and Brand were bridges between the, hip, uh, the beat culture of the 50s and the hippie culture of the 60s in different ways. Stuart likes to think of himself as an off-the-bus prankster, and here he was hanging onto the bus, which I, <laughs> I enjoyed a, a lot. I think that's going to the acid test graduation. Bill English is sitting at the terminal with the glasses, and uh, English was Doug Engelbart's lead engineer, um, chief, in chief of engineering for the project that Engelbart did that was shown uh, just across the street here in December of 1968. So sort of the thousand best computer scientists in the world learned about interactive computing. And English told me that he had invited Stuart in because of Stuart's experience with the American, American Needs Indians project. He was looking for someone to, who, who knew about multimedia. 
And um, of course, Engelbart um, pioneered the mouse and hypertext, and that technology we use today. In terms of Stuart Brand's scholarship, I think this was my best discovery. And reading this reframed the way I look both at the Whole Earth Catalog and at Silicon Valley in a really significant way. So imagine, in 1967, everybody else, all of your friends, are heading off to the land to start communes. August of 67, Stuart shows up in Menlo Park. You remember, Silicon Valley wasn't named until 1971, but in the second half of the 60s, all the forces that would create the valley were alive and they were happening everywhere. So Stuart shows up and he says, with the intent to let my technology happen here in Menlo Park. Who had the sense that Silicon Valley was going to happen three years later? And St Stuart ended up at, at ground zero. What he was doing, this, the project he was doing, was an educational technology fair, which failed. Uh, the funny thing is about the, the funding proposal is remarkable. If you read the funding proposal, it reads exactly like the Maker Fair. As a matter of fact, it was supposed to happen at the San Mateo County Fairgrounds. It was just 40 years early. Uh, but what I walked away from this journal with is, one, how close he was to Engelbart for the year before he actually um, started the, uh, was involved in the demo and then started the catalog, and how influential Engelbart was on Stuart during that year much more so than I understand, understood. If you, if you read the subtitle of the whole Earth catalog, it's subtitled Access to Tools. And if you ask Stuart, where did that come from? He'd say, well, I'm just channeling, I was just channeling Buckminster Fuller. Fuller, of course, said, you know, if you want to change the world, just give someone a tool and teach them how to learn it. But at the same time, he was influenced by Engelbart. And of course, Engelbart at that time was wor at work on creating the universal tool. And so what I came away uh, realizing, you know, there are a number of books that have come out real, uh, recently. Uh, the, the zeitgeist on Silicon Valley has gone very rapidly from Silicon Valley being able to do no wrong to Silicon Valley being able to do no right. And two of the books that appeared in 2017 basically go back to Stuart's biography looking for Silicon Valley's original sin. And it just, I, when I finished this, I, it just flipped my perception entirely of, about the relationship between the catalog and Silicon Valley. Um, in, in Brandian terms, they basically co-evolved. Co and that it, what's interesting to me about that is the stuff that Stuart ran into in the late 60s on the Mid-Peninsula and fed into the catalog basically influenced an entire generation of young Americans while Silicon Valley was forming. It was the first thing that came out of Silicon Valley, basically. And so I had to completely turn it on its head. Sometimes the internet gets everything wrong, too. That's another thing that probably surprises you. Um, this is Stuart talking at uh, the first hackers conference in 1984. This is what the internet says he said. Information wants to be free. As a matter of fact, they got the date wrong. It was, it was in 1984, not the 1960s. And this, of course, is what Stuart actually said. Information wants to be very expensive and information wants to be free. He was describing a paradox, which he, you know, in a sense, channeling Gregory Bateson. And yet, you know, we only heard the second half of what he said. And it, of course, led directly to the open source software movement and also became the rallying cry for the dot-com era and led us into this regulatory or non-regulatory morass that we're in today. So thank you, Sander. To explore the life of Stuart Brand more deeply, I joined John on stage for a Q&A also featuring Stuart himself. In addition to the conversation in the theater, I'll be adding in some extra context to some of the projects as we go along.
So I just want to ask a little bit just about the maybe uh, your background and your process. And looking through a lot of your work, you mostly don't really write so much profiles or biography work. And, and so I'm wondering, w w what made you want to do a biography in this case? Yeah, so once again, it's... Uh, so I've been... I grew up in Palo Alto. I grew up in the heart of um, Silicon Valley. I played in the Hewlett household as a child. And Silicon Valley, I mean, my first book, um, What the Dormouse Said, was actually an anti-autobiography um, in the sense that I left the valley in 67 and I returned in 77 and there was this thing called Silicon Valley that popped up in the, in the inter interim. And um, I've always puzzled about why it happened, where it happened, and when it happened. And that's been a question that's sort of uh, is, is bugged me for a long time. And of course, Stuart was right in the middle of all that. And so um, one of the things I should say, I was getting ready to leave the Times in 2016 and uh, got a call from Kevin Kelly. He said, you know, Stuart was thinking about writing an autobiography, but he's decided he doesn't want to. You should write a biography. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm about a decade behind Stuart, and in a lot of ways I've, I've, I've followed him through, you know, many of his adventures. And so uh, it was not only a fascinating life, but it played on a lot of the issues that I was interested in. I, I realize it, since you met him at, uh, around the time of the Hackers Conference, right? Or that's I the think first the time first time, time yeah, that's a funny thing. That's the first time I remember speaking with Stuart. The first time I have a very clear, you know, I showed up in the truck store as, as a college student, um, but I have very few memories of it. Um, that was a, it was a, a remarkable place. I mean, people talk about places like um, Florence or Vienna, and that place in that time was an extraordinary, the, the community, the counterculture community which surrounded the three computer labs was an extraordinary place. Can you say a little bit about what the truck store was? Uh, well, uh, you know, so, the, the classic story is Stuart was uh, on this airplane coming back from his father's funeral and he began to wonder what he could do for his friends who were um, going back to the communes. And so he sort of hatched this notion of a truck that would take information and tools out to the communes and sell them to them. And he took two uh, sort of uh, uh, beta road trips during that summer of 68. And the first thing he realized is his friends on the communes had no money. So that wasn't going to work. <laughs> and, and, and so he pivoted in a classic kind of Silicon Valley way and found the idea of this catalog. Uh, and, and so that, I mean, the, the truck store then became the, the, the home base for the catalog. It had all kinds of interesting, mostly books, but it had clothing and tools and all kinds of stuff. And it was uh, kind of a beacon for a the while. Physical instantiation. Yeah, of the catalog. And I mean, I think what's, you kind of, the book really exemplifies this, but your, your slideshow as well as it, Stuart kind of has this like Forrest Gump level of like showing up in all of these places at the right time. That Kennedy shot looks like it's actually from the Forrest Gump movie, <laughs> if you remember where they edited him, in, edited him into that shot. Um, but this, uh, this kind of amazing ability of being um, at, at a place either, in some cases, 40 years too early, apparently, with, with yeah. one idea, yeah. uh, but in some cases, just the right amount of early to, um, to cause something to happen. And I was... I wonder if you could comment on that before we have Stuart come Yeah, up. and I, I puzzled over that, and I've asked Stuart about that, and Stuart's thought about that. And I, You know, uh, I think it's uh, a way of looking at the world is the only thing I can sort of surmise is, is how you could do it. I mean, you know, um, being able to do something repeatedly, you know, when you do it more than two or three times, you think there, there must be a methodology here. And I, I, I wasn't able to define the methodology, but it's happened too many times to have been coincidence. Well, this is a perfect time to have Stuart up, but we can ask him ourselves. Yeah. <laughs>
Here you are, once again, in the right place at the right time. Right. <laughs> so, Stuart, I, do, I want to bring this question back to you. Is what, what do you think, what do you attribute this kind of mindset yeah. that's allowed you to be there? And then also you seem to kind of leave before it commercializes or, or something like that. So it's, it's both good luck and bad luck, maybe. I'm not sure. Something happened at Exeter and Stanford that uh, we haven't quite talked about this, which uh, it's in John's book. Uh, I was never Dean's List. I was a B student all the way. And one of the things you learn at these late uh, schools and universities is you are not the sharpest tool in the shed. And <laughs> that's anyway what I was realizing. And so in the poker game of life, I had a not very good hand. What do you do? Well, you can bluff or um, you can leave the game. And what I sort of did, you know, the not only would the fraternities not have me, the eating clubs wouldn't have me. I was so asocial. And so if that's the situation, what do you do? And I think what I realized is if I tried to compete, I would always lose. But when you invent, it's not competition yet. Yeah. yeah. And so inventing became my mode, and then it's just a question of acquiring a lot of skills to that you can apply to starting things. And you go and discover other people who are starting things to either help them do that or uh, learn from them how to do it. Yeah. And, and then the people who start things tend to find each other, the ones who do it well. And that was, that was, my, that was my gang. Uh, lots of different people at different times. But uh, we hardly ever competed. I mean, you know, there was, I never even bought dope. Uh, there was so much floating around, you just... <laughs> <laughs> they were all selling dope. I didn't get in that game, but I certainly took it when they handed it to me. Um, yeah, so a lot of stuff was free, a lot of stuff was cheap. Uh, the great thing about the hippies is um, even the ones who didn't have to pretended to be poor. I was sort of one of those. I lived in a $20 a month apartment in North Beach if you can imagine that <laughs> these days. Um, and, and you point out a wonderful thing in the book, which I, I can recommend. Um, from time to time, I would write my mother. I'm, he's read all these letters <laughs> that I wrote my mother from camp on. And my God, what's in there? Um, but part of why I was doing it was um, at the end of these very informative um, family letters, I would say, oh, by the way, do you think you could maybe send a uh, hundred dollars uh, uh, whenever it's convenient? <laughs> and she would do that. And so I was just sort of in a trickling way subsidized. And, and I'll, I'll wrap on this. So it meant that I didn't have to get a job. And the thing that Brian Eno says to art students now routinely is, um, you're going to go out of here and you, and you can't make money yet, probably, at what you really want to do. And you're going to be tempted to get a job. Please don't do that. <laughs> because if you do that, and then you see something or somebody, or you have an idea, or there's an opportunity to go somewhere, you won't be able to act on it. And you need to be able to act on things right away. And so don't have a job. And thanks to my mother and that little subsidy that came along from time to time by request, 
I was able to not have a job and not have a career. And this is, I think, the floating upstream yeah. thing. But I'd like to know from you what, why you wanted to call the book Floating Upstream. Oh, well, you're an iconoclast. Um, you do go in different directions. That was, that mm -hmm. was one of the things that struck me uh, right away. I mean, I, I, I described Stuart as being wealthy in an as-needed way. <laughs> it was wealthy enough not to get a day job, and I think that mm -hmm. was that was that really was what you. If you got, you almost did get a, jo a day job. I mean, you were coming to Menlo Park in 1967 to look for a job in the business technology world. What would have happened if, if uh, Dick had gotten you a job? I would have been fired. <laughs> yeah. I, I sort of was fired by the army. That's true. <laughs> well, this is all true. a good argument for forgiving student debt. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Brian Eno principle of this. The, um, I think, and also I think it's interesting this thing about the things that were misattributed to Stuart and, and these quotes that mm -hmm. I've seen now many times the stay hungry, stay foolish is now attributed to Steve, Steve Jobs, Jobs yeah. because yeah. he said it, but he yeah. was quoting you or he's quoting the, the catalog. But he's so. the only person who ever quoted it or took it seriously. I learned this, uh, we did a thing together for uh, the Library of Congress and afterwards, the people who had shot the film said, Steve would love to have a copy of the catalog that says, Stay Hungry, Stay Foolish, would you sign it? And I did that and sent it off. And then a couple of years later, he gave that amazing commencement speech at Stanford. And, uh, and I, I sort of wrote to him and basically said, Steve, you owe me lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so I went down and had a lunch with him. And it was great, but I should have asked him what the hell Stay Hungry, Stay Foolish meant to him. <laughs> Because now everybody asks me, it meant so much to Steve Jobs. What does it actually mean? What it meant to him, I have no idea. What do you think? Well, uh, that's an interesting question of what it meant to Steve. I, but I, I mean, the way you described it. Well, you know a lot better than me. You've well, so I know a lot about the creation of that, of that speech. I mean, Michael Hawley, who's mm -hmm. no longer with us, actually helped Steve write that speech. And I think a lot of the sort of the catalog stuff was actually co-created by those two. Um, okay. And so, uh, but in terms that's of not known by people before now. Yeah. Michael Hawley really deserves that credit. Yeah. But so, well, uh, so I mean, I'm mostly, I was mostly interested in what it meant to you because you described the relationship between that, that open road that was mm. sitting beneath it and uh, you know, the stay hungry, stay foolish. It was the idea of a hitchhiker mm -hmm. setting out on a road and mm. they didn't know where they were going and life was just this open open book in front of them. And yeah. someone's eyes must meet the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Again, don't get a job. Yeah. Don't, get, don't get a job. But I, mean, I, I, can't, I can't tell you when I took, well, so first of all, there's this, this bimodal distribution of pe people who knows, people who know Stuart. They're, they're the people who grew up in my generation who read the catalog. And then there are people who saw Steve Jobs' commencement address. And then mm -hmm. there's this big empty space in between. It's, it's really, but I, I've tried to count the number of people who've watched that um, that video, and it's in the tens of millions. I'm, I'm not wow. quite Imagine. sure. I don't have a real number because YouTube yeah. screws everything up. And <laughs> Boy, around. if I'm in a star in somebody's speech, that's the one. <laughs> so. And I think one of, the, one of the things I really loved, I mean, I've, I've now known Stuart for 40 years. I, I was falling asleep under tables that he was having meetings at Sausalito at, <laughs> and trying to sa help save the waterfront when I was uh, a kid. Art zone, yeah. And, um, so... Uh, but I was so surprised by some of the early stuff that you pulled out. And as you point out, we, we always have seen Stuart as the leader 
um, in almost everything. He was first to everything, but what I never knew was his, the relationship with his brother and how that he actually followed his brother to the army, to yeah. logging, right? And then, mm -hmm. as well as Stanford. Um, how did you pull all that stuff out? Where does that, well, where's those materials? Uh, that from? came out of our conversation. Stuart, I was very, I mean, it was, it was strange because he, he had two brothers um, and he, he, he had an older brother and, and, you know, I also talked to Mike, his older brother, who he did follow and it was, the relationship was largely on Stuart's side. Mike was not aware of, as aware of Stuart as Stuart was aware of Mike. Right. And um, Mike was kind of surprised when I told him actually how, how hmm. much you followed him. Um, but but and, and I don't completely know why um, Stuart skipped over his middle brother because he would have been closer in age, but he really, he, he really sort of took Mike as his role model. Um, I, you know, so here's, here's how serendipity comes into the world. One of the, uh, the really great things that Mike told me is why he ended up at Stanford, which of course is why Stuart ended up mm -hmm. at Stanford. So unlike Stuart, Mike was a football star, a star at Exeter, and he mm -hmm. was a jock and all of those things. And I, I think he played football at Stanford too, but... Oh, uh, he started to. He started to. But the yeah. reason he went to Stanford is he was in the hospital, or he was sick at one point, and he was reading this magazine, and he saw that Stanford... Um, had this football coach that had lost all of his games in the season. And they kept the coach, they didn't fire the coach. And so Mike said, that's the place for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a great attitude. Be, because they didn't fire their coach, like any place that would keep a coach? They didn't take the sport that seriously. All right. he, so that. he wanted the scholarship at the place that didn't take it seriously. <laughs> yeah. That's really great. Uh, I think the, 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 some of the stuff that you've, uh, you've brought up and even, I think, surprised Stuart with, I'd, I'd love for you guys to say a little bit about some of the things that maybe, the way some of these things have looped around. I think it was one of the things, the, the, the Save the Whales movement uh, yeah. story, I think, was an interesting well, one. You know, Stuart has had forays over time into activism. He, he sort of, I mean, one of the, the interesting sort of dichotomies between Stuart and I is that he's got this antipathy to the new left, and I grew up in the new left, and so that was an interesting thing that we negotiated. You're a red diaper baby. I was a red diaper baby, yeah. that's true. <laughs> but We didn't have any red diapers in <laughs> Illinois, I'll tell you. So, so um, I mean, one of Stuart's sort of activist ventures was putting... Um, a, a, a group together to try to create a Woodstock, a Woodstock home in Stockholm at uh, this first global environmental conference. He thought he could get three or 400,000 people uh, in a Woodstock kind of way, and I think he got, what, 800 or 900? If that. Yeah, and, and Stuart was, you know, he was in a tough phase in his, his life. His marriage was falling apart, and um, he got there, and uh, he was pretty much a wreck during the whole thing, and, and basically didn't see that that Stockholm conference um, and the, you know, the, the Save the Whales stuff came out of the stuff that he did. And there the was, image of that vehicle that was dressed up as the whale that's right. became this iconic thing. It's, it was on every newspaper page, in, uh, front page in, in the world, and it, in fact, the Save the Whales treaty pretty much directly came out of that, and so he was involved in that, but he didn't see that at all. As a matter of fact, that well, sort of the, turned you away from activism at that point. Yeah, <laughs> the untold story of the whale in Stockholm was they, the hog farmers, a bunch of buses based sort of on, on the pranksters further, and they dressed up a bus as a whale, which is well, not bad for scale. It was more rectangular than most whales. Uh, but they had a tail and stuff like that, and they had tapes. That was a big deal when the uh, um, humpback whale songs were a big deal, and so they had this tape that was gonna play a humpback whale song as it paraded through downtown Stockholm. And as usual, on prankster and some hog farm things, there was a fuck up and they couldn't get the tape to work. 
So they had to persuade everybody marching to sing like whales, <laughs> which was better. <laughs> But actually, that's another great story. I think you kind of you found earlier evidence of the why haven't we seen the the yeah. picture of the whole Earth? Then I think Stuart I mean, remembered right. That question, why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole Earth, was thought up by Stuart in the midst of the space race. By 1966, he was passing out buttons with the slogan on it in San Francisco. By 1967, it was a national movement. Then by 1969, NASA had released the photo. Stewart talked about this, how things would bubble for years and perhaps decades. And um, in this particular case, you know, he tells this story about going up on the roof here in North Beach and on a half a tab of acid and sort of wondering about why the earth was curved and coming down and stairs and starting this project. But when I w was reading through the documents, I could see that um, a, a lot of those threads were in... I mean, I think my guess was he stumbled across this in one of... LBJ's uh, inauguration speeches where he was quoting um, mm. um, Carl Sagan um, about this blue dot. And Stuart, I could see Stuart had outlined that. He'd stumbled across this idea of, of being able to see the entire Earth at least two or three years before you stumble across it again. Yeah. Well, you know, as a photographer, to have your most famous photograph be one that was taken by other people. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little strange, so you can imagine how pleased I am that the cover photograph on John's book is a self-portrait that I actually took in North Beach <laughs> at the very place where the, the roof with the LSD was. I, I think one of the, you mentioned this a little bit in your talk, but I, I think it's worth kind of talking about it a little bit more, is the amount of source material that you have is kind of oh, staggering. And I mean, and the amount of interviews I know you did. I mean, can yeah. you say how many interviews and, and how many, yeah. and how you got and to, the, how you accessed the emails you did access and... So it's, yeah, the, this was a sort of, a, a biography was, was a new research domain for, for me and Stuart had been kind enough to keep stuff and Stanford had curated it, but um, going through it was com completely, um, so I have a, a 16 gigabyte file. I digitized everything dutiful, dutifully. And what I found is a, at a certain point, string search breaks down as a useful tool. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the other thing, uh, Stuart talked about his, um, his correspondence with his mother. I dutifully read all of Stuart's letters. If I had read, tried to read his mother's letters, I would still be reading because <laughs> his mother's handwriting was completely illegible. <laughs> Um, a, a computer might be able to do it, but I couldn't do it. it to decipher one of his, his mother's letters would take a half an hour. Right. Um, it was really quite remarkable. One of Stewart's first forays into bringing people together was the Trips Festival in 1966, a gathering of 10,000 hippies over three days at the Longshoremen's Hall in San Francisco. The festival featured musical performances from bands such as the Grateful Dead. It was a key moment in the development of the countercultural scene in San Francisco and the broader world. I don't know if you came across this document. I remember when there was a document when uh, the the, for the Trips Festival uh, anniversary that was a while ago, where there was a the budget document for that that he yep. he submitted saying that the Grateful Dead were going to play, and yep. had booked them, yep. and he had not even talked to them. And, and then they, they showed up because they were on the poster. Was my understanding yeah. of that story? I think that's or maybe true. you should tell that story. That's, that's my memory of this. Well, story. Lois tells that story, but I don't think that in in the movie. I don't think that ever happened. It might have, something like that might have happened with not the Trips Festival, but the later one, whatever it is. Um, oh, whatever, it, yeah, whatever it is, at San Francisco State. Which I did State. San Francisco State, State yeah. and it was uncertain whether Kesey was going to be able to show up or not. 
And I think I sort of indicated that pranksters and so on, that world was going to be there. Yeah. And I guess the dead did play. On the second night? Oh, yeah. Uh, on and, that, and that's when I, well, I exploded the place with an atomic bomb. Yeah. Yeah, on Friday night, the... the uh, what Jerry I Garcia. had was a guy get on the stage um, and, and turn on the soundtrack of uh, the newscasters saying that the launch has happened. Uh, it's going to hit all of them, and then did a countdown to how long. And people are kind of going, well, this is kind of weird. And I'd wired the place with, uh, with hidden flashlights. And so when he got to, I'm afraid this is it, folks. And then psh, all these things went off. There was a great big kaboom sound. And all the lights in that part of campus went dark. <laughs> kind of a fuck you to the audience. Um, <laughs> So the, the other remarkable thing about the, the trip We're not going to do that here, don't worry. It, I mean, Bill Graham was the one who took the most away from the Trips Festival in so many ways. I mean, the mm-hmm. day after the Trips Festival, um, they met at a cafe across from the Fillmore, which was not the Fillmore. And uh, that day, Graham leased the Fillmore. Um, and, and the first poster of the Fillmore said, you know, with the sights and sounds of the mm-hmm. Trips Festival. And so both the you know the San Francisco music scene, and also I think Tom Wolfe said that you know the the the, the trips uh, the trips festival um, was the first time the 10,000 hippies in the Bay Area realized there were 10,000 hippies and had this way of creating a community, <laughs> and there was a direct line to the Haight Ashbury. Yep, I think that's true. Which of course Stewart missed. I mean, Stewart has been called the prince of the hippies, and I think that's just ridiculous. Um, you know, you were a bridge to the hippies, mm-hmm. and, but you were gone by the time uh, the Summer of Love happened. You were down in, in Menlo Park. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, actually, I think this is a, a, a good point, is that often people associate Stuart with the hippies, but really he was in the beat movement, and then, mm-hmm. or how would you describe it? Is that... Well, it was, quote, silent generation, uh, which was an observation made at Stanford uh, by, of my students, by our faculty, who the previous set of students said had were GI Bill folks, uh, the people who come back from the Second World War, uh, wanting to get an education, they weren't there to get drunk, uh, having seen more of the world than most of their teachers, having been through combat in many cases, and they were taking no shit. And so they would, in classes for these teachers, uh, push back. And real discussions about real stuff would occur. And the teachers who didn't hate it loved it. And then we came along and we looked like the most flaccid, uh, kind of pathetic, quiet uh, people they'd seen because that was the contrast. And uh, so we were called the silent generation. We later uh, fixed that. (laughs) But it was before the boomers. And so I was, Kesey was a little older than me. I was a little older than most of, most of the hippies. If you want to sort of bracket it, um, late 60s, 68 catalog and so on would be sort of early hippie. And when um, Steve Jobs came along and was being influenced by the whole earth catalog, that was sort of late hippie. And that's sort of that, that was the, and both of us went out and tried to make do with communes in the countryside. Both of us got insanely bored and came back to town pretty quickly, yeah. uh, which everyone did, um, but w- almost everyone. And, but it was because yeah. we did an important thing, which was have these fond fantasies 
and uh, not get jobs, go out and with not much money, play out our fantasies, and then have our noses rubbed in the mess that it made of, you know, there is no free love, there is no free money, there is all, all this, gardening is hard, domes leak, all this stuff, you know, drugs make you crazy. And so we learned like a good dog, that is a mess, don't do that, do other cool stuff. And, you know, the hippies had been selling dope to each other, so a lot of us knew how to be businessmen because of that. And here's another important thing. Long hairs were picked up each other hitchhiking because nobody else would. And if you're a long hair, you were basically um, part of the problem as far as America was concerned, except for business people. For reasons I don't know, one of the hippies sort of ethics was, uh, to be honest, tell the damn truth and, uh, and don't whisper. And so we were strangely honest. We would pay bills you know, when we got them and stuff like that. And business people realized that long hair or not, weird face paint or not, to fraction gratings on the forehead or not, we were actually good customers, good employees, and then uh, soon enough, with our own inventions, good business people. And that's who we became, basically. In 1968, Stuart began publishing a little magazine that listed and reviewed all of the tools you would need to do it yourself. Everything from books to analog synthesizers to hiking boots to welding gear. That magazine, the Whole Earth Catalog, would become a nationwide phenomenon, eventually winning the National Book Award. The Whole Earth Catalog, like all good things, had to come to an end eventually. On June 12th of 1971, Stuart chose to end it with a bang, holding a wake at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. The centerpiece of the event? $20,000 in cash for the attendees to decide what to do with. Stewart's final gift from a catalog that offered access to tools. And I think going through that hippie process, um, one of the things about living cheap is you get very aware that you can, you get very aware of what you can do with a bit of money. And the reason the demise party where we put, I put $20,000 in cash on the, on the podium for people to hold in their hands and talk about what everybody should do with it. That was such a zoo. I mean, it, it, imagine doing it now with the younger generation <laughs> with uh, crypto money and uh, Stripe money and all the kinds of, uh, hey, here's $20,000, we have to decide what to do with it. And everybody would just walk out. It's not an interesting amount of money. <laughs> <laughs> But back then, the hippies, it was an unimaginable amount of money. They had no sense of how to do group process. The new left was not good at that, unfortunately, by and large. And the hippies were terrible at it. So you, know, you would argue and not, and not do anything. That's why the education fair didn't happen. And so it was a zoo, but it was an interesting zoo. But it had a serendipitous effect, too. Spell it out. So, um, they, they spent the entire night trying to decide what to do with the money by consensus, and they failed. They, they said, cost Stuart Brand $5,000 make a really great party and $20,000 to spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the night, at some point, the, this guy who was an itinerant drafter sister by the name of Fred Moore stood up, and he actually burned one of the $2 bills that he, he had in his pocket. That was all he had in, 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 to his name. And when people gave up on figuring out what to do with the money, they gave the money to the guy who'd burned the dollar bill. 
And so Fred Moore, who didn't believe in money, ended up walking away with the money. And, and the great irony, you know, is Fred was a bit of a hacker, and he was involved in these events that happened monthly, uh, these potlucks at, at, the, uh, at the Portola Institute, at the People's Computer Center. And when they fell apart, um, he was one of the two people with Gordon French who started the Homebrew Computer Club. You can see why people paid attention to him, because the deal was there had to be a vote of who was going to get the money and do the idea that, that people liked. And uh, Gordon had, uh, he had burned the dollar bill, and he said, it's not the money. You know, you just burn half of his money. Uh, it's the people. And then he started collecting a list of names and phone numbers. And people realized that here was a one guy who was, had, actually had a good concept of the real event. This was a bunch of people who could work together. And uh, that it was not the money. And, and just you know, access their phone numbers. And so then what happened? Well, ultimately, two dozen companies, including Apple, came out of that. And then, you know, it was sort of that... <laughs> I, out of the homebrew computer club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, Apple was that canonical Silicon Valley company where was, there was Steve Wozniak who just wanted to build a computer to show to his friends at the homebrew computer club, and then there was this guy, Steve Jobs, who saw there was a market there, and it was that match that for a long time, I think, was the kind of defining mm. archetype of a, of a Silicon Valley company. We can take freaks for Silicon Valley. Freaks, that is, with a PH, a loose group of people who, starting in the late 1950s, began to mess around with telephone networks by reverse engineering the sonic tones that were used to direct cross-country calls. At first, they used whistles, but eventually these freaks devised machines called blue boxes that generated the tones required. Two of those freaks, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, would later go on to found Apple. Did... When they sold blue boxes, was it Steve Jobs who wanted to sell them and... and no, uh, uh, and, and actually it was Wozniak. Wozniak. who wanted to call the Pope? It was Wozniak's mother. Um, she was the one who read that article, <gasps> and she sent it to her son, and so phone, they... A story in Esquire about phone yeah, freaks. That's yeah, that's right. The Mysteries of the Little Blue Box. And, and they set off on a quest to find John Draper, and about <laughs> three weeks later, Draper showed up in their dorm room and taught them how to build these uh, things, which they then sold door-to-door, -door, and that was the original capital. For Explain them. why John Draper was called Captain Crunch. Oh, uh, well, that, would, that, um, that whistle in the cereal box was tuned to the exact frequency that basically unhooked a Watts extender and lets you get a long-distance phone call. Uh, yeah, so, 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 in your <laughs> Cracker Jack or whatever it was, <laughs> is a thing that gives you free calls anywhere yeah. in the world. Yeah. <laughs> How wild is that? Yeah. And didn't, didn't you find a document recently that, was, that showed, that, or Stuart maybe found it, that that you were talking about phone freaking. Yeah, that was that photograph I that took picture. Yeah. of uh, before I was a photographer because I was so pleased of having you know bought a bunch of resistors across the street at wherever it was. Zach's. Zach's, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. And uh, and just put them out for free by the phone. And what you did is you you took the resistor, put it in the base of the handset, and then found the whole piano hinge on the door, touched it that, and it was a ground, and dial tone, call anyone. <laughs> nice. Um, and that's actually a good segue, and I want to make sure we bring this up a little bit to, you know, the present, and, and mm. I think the... Um, long now. The, well, not long now yet, but I, th the, I think, you know, you're, you're alternately kind of blamed for all of the, the wrongs of Silicon Valley and, and kind of uh, giving credit for some of the birth of these ideas, and especially mm. with the, 
The Well, which is a, a story that I think you get to and you were part of. And I think mm -hmm. I'd love for you to tell a little bit about what you thought of The Well as it started. And, and I'd love to hear what Sturt got out of that. For those of you who weren't using the internet in the 1980s, The Well, or Whole Earth Electronic Link, is an online community that was founded by Stuart and epidemiologist Larry Brilliant in 1985. Over its 37-year existence, The Well has played an important role in shaping the culture of the web. In 1997, Wired Magazine called it the world's most influential online community. Key to The Well's culture were the presence of many interesting technologists and writers within the community, all communicating using their real names. The well is an, the, the arc of the well is an interesting story, and Stewart's inner, you know his creation of the well and his exit from the well was interesting to me as well. But you know, I was one of these technology writers at that point when the well started. I was just making the the transition um, from Byte Magazine, which is very technical, to the San Francisco Examiner. Thank you, Will, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know Stewart's brilliant marketing move in starting the well was that he gave free accounts to people like me and Stephen Levy and a bunch of other technology writers. And to and, hackers. And to hackers, that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, and it created this community, but it also basically gave the well an out-of-scale reputation. I don't think there were never more than 14,000 members of the well. I'd be surprised you know, if, if I had to situate, you know, there was a digital culture that emerged, but the, the well was a pretty small part of it, and it wasn't first. I mean, there was... <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> the well. Uh, is still, uh, Thank but you. you know there was um, there there was CompuServe, there was the Source, there was Prodigy, and most importantly, I think if you wanted to situate a digital culture, there was Usenet. Um, all mm. of the Unix, uh, all of the Unix uh, data centers around the country were connected, and there was a, a very kind of libertarian spirit, a hacker spirit in those, and that basically was happening at the same time. There was Fidonet was going on. All of this stuff was happening, and the well was a big a big part of it, but it mm. wasn't. Um, and you know the other the thing that I took away, I called that chapter anonymity, um, because Stewart had seen some of the things that we're now recognizing now as problems in this cyberspace metaverse, what do you want to call it? And he tried to design the well to to deal with them. And it, it, I think ultimately six years later, you decided you hadn't solved that problem and you walked away from it. What I'd seen is that. Um I learned about the stuff that we did on the well from a, a system called Eyes, uh, E I E S, I guess. Yeah. And um, I was on a system with a limited conversation of about 20, 30 people, corporate people, intellectuals, computer people. And um, we would meet twice a year and then just sort of go through discussing various things. And then in a sense, I was on the faculty of this group. Um, and one of the discussion points that came up is anonymity is important because some people need to be able to get a message out without it uh, coming back to really bite them uh, because it's an important truth and, and uh, it, you know, power will, will find them and destroy them. So uh, let's have a little anonymous uh, sub-conversation within these various conversations that we were having on eyes. And it was set up, and within two days it had gone completely sociopathic. And what happens is, when you have anonymity, people can pretend to be other people, and uh, as this other person then do something really uh, sort of insidey, jokey, and cruel, and then uh, that gets the other people who are also now realizing they're anonymous to be equally cruel back. And uh, it spirals into real viciousness really fast. 
And so that was why I, I wanted to be sure that that kind of anonymity was not going to be available on the well. But we did allow people to change their names and it wound up being easy for them to get separate accounts and they'd be kicked off the well and they'd come back as somebody else. And uh, we did not control it. And Facebook, originally it was your Facebook identity that was going to be your digital identity in the world. And then that got lost for them. And you see the, the downstream. So I think still that you own your own words, you're responsible for your own words. And it's not only that you're responsible for your own words online, it's actually a real you, not a bot, not somebody else pretending to be you, it's actually you. And it's the, the true names thing that Werner Winger wrote about, I think we're gonna need to have that, or at least a channel where that is always really a lot reliable. Yeah. Yeah, and it's pretty much a microcosm of exactly what we're living through now at a, mm -hmm. at a macro scale. Um, and so I, I, I thought it's interesting how early that lesson was learned, yet not yeah. really, not actually learned. Yeah. The, the cyberpunk science fiction writers laid this all out for us in the 1980s. What oh, didn't we get about what they were writing? Yeah. Uh, I think people I mean, used it as a roadmap instead of a warning. I, mean, I, I blame myself. I mean, I, you know, I fell for John, Barlow's, uh, John Perry Barlow's utopianism as much as anybody else did. Uh, you know, this was going to be this Socrates abode that was going to be separate from the real world. Well, there was a lot of people standing behind John kind of rolling our eyes. He <laughs> <laughs> would spin that out. <laughs> But I think, and that's worth touching on too. I mean, there's the time, I mean, even the time as long I was getting started in the mid nineties where, you know, there was the techno optimism was, a, was very much part of, of the, the, your scene and mm -hmm. the long now founding. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then as, as that optimism has, has certainly faded in some cases turned to absolute terror. Um, how do you, how do you feel in your kind of birth of this movement and then where it's gone and, 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 and that? The, the pendulum of attention that goes from everything is great about an actually mixed bag to everything is terrible about an actually mixed bag um, is, I don't know, I guess one of the ways that people catch on, that, that learn that it actually is a mixed bag because you have to oscillate. Um, but it's a mixed bag from, from the go and it, it's a mixed bag every step of the way. Uh, you could say, oh gosh, Facebook is so evil because they did this, that, and the other thing. Facebook is an absolute blessing for most people most of the time. And that reality hasn't changed. Yeah. You know, there have some issues that are still being sorted out and they're quite consequential issues affect presidential elections and things like that. But they do get sorted out and I suppose the the optimism is that you bear down on the problems, you don't solve them right away. The really tough problems do not get solved right away. Climate is in that category, and, and online behavior, I think, is in that category. There's lots of paradoxes built into it, and you've got to sort your way through them. Um, Gregory Bateson said, he worked with schizophrenics a lot, he said that you, you will see people who are as schizophrenic as they ever were, but they sort of manage in the world. He said, that's like learning to ride a crazy horse. Uh, the problem with the horse is you uh, want it to go left and instead it uh, goes right and dumps you off and runs away. Uh, but you can figure out 
the situation of the crazy, crazy horse. And people have these neuroses, uh, sometimes with talk therapy, sometimes with drugs, sometimes just with life. Figure out how to manage the damn thing and ride the crazy horse. And I think we do that at the social and civilizational and cultural level as well. Well, I think this is the thing that you point out in the book, and we have a few questions along these lines as well, is that um, kind of Stuart also knew when to leave in some way, or maybe, maybe knowing is the, is the wrong term, but it's but more kind like, of got, got bored why did he always leave early? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, but there was this, uh, this restlessness and, and even sometimes, you know, these failures like the education thing that, that then in somehow kind of launched into the next thing. So yeah. what did you learn in like watching those cycles? Well, I mean, I think Stuart explained it to me as he, he had a relatively short attention span. You have a relatively short attention span. You would tend to get bored and moved on, move on. That was actually something that worked to your advantage. Yeah, and, and you know, the five-year thing that we talked about, it's sort of a project that is going somewhere. It takes about five years to mature. And if you have a sort of a five-year attention span, which I guess I did, um, uh, one point I wrote, when, when you can do the thing you're doing in your sleep, <laughs> wake up, uh, <laughs> go somewhere else. And, and things would get to that point where you, you could sort of can see what's coming and oh yeah, here's coming around again. Or, um, and if invention is what turns you on, uh, it, 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 you're not getting it anymore from that particular domain, and so uh, you have to go somewhere else. Yeah. And, and there's, uh, you know, back when we had gears and gear shifts, uh, <laughs> you had to go through neutral between gears. That's kind of true, and so there's a period, um, Bob Fuller uh, would say that you know, you're somebody and then you're nobody. And that, you know, when you call that chapter anonymity, I thought you were referring to sort of a period <laughs> when I was nobody. And uh, it's important, I think, that, and Fuller really pointed this out, if you get addicted to being somebody, you will become a character of yourself because you'll be you know, picking up on what people think you're famous for. Um, and in order to escape from that, you have to give up on being somebody and be nobody a while. But nobody is a fantastic place to be. It's, it's like the art student who's just out of school and, and doesn't have a job. They're open to the world. And that's maybe the stay hungry, stay foolish thing, is, is to be, relish being a nobody. I, I, I had to, I, you know, I, the catalog is often seen in the framing of the counterculture and the back to the land movement, and I, I really wanted to take it out of that framing. Mm. And I think uh, <clears throat> my experience in working on this project and telling people I was working on it, and the people from my generation, I can't tell you how many times I would say I'm working on a book about the guy who created the whole catalog, and they go, you know, that something that they saw, I, sent, I ran into this over and over again, something they saw in the catalog, something they stumbled along in the catalog, stumbled upon in the catalog, sent their life in an orthogonal direction. It just happened too many times. And I, I think Kevin Kelly has actually sort of 
figured this out. I mean, the catalog, first of all, information was scarce. And so the catalog mm -hmm. was a centralized way to, to, to find new things in the world. And, and to my mind, you know, Steve Jobs called it uh, Google before Google, but I don't think that's quite right. I, I thought of it as a fantasy amplifier. I mean, it would give people, in, in Kevin's words, give people a, a way to invent their own life. And I, I, it just happened to my entire generation, and it was horizontal. It wasn't limited to one part of society. I mean, in the first three years, they, told, they sold three million copies, and you know where they, they were. They were in everybody's bathroom or living room, right, all over the country, and they were each read by five people. Hmm. And so it had a huge impact on, on that generation. And actually, it's a great uh, segue. We have a question here from the audience. Of, how did you get the source material for the first catalog? Say again? How did you get the source material for the very first catalog? Oh, God, that was so sketchy. Um, <laughs> there's a... Um, <laughs> there, there, I discovered a thing called the single copy order form. If you pretend you're a bookstore, uh, you, you can order a, a, a single copy directly from a publisher. And so I started ordering these books that I wanted. Uh, <laughs> At, you know the discount and book uh, freaking <laughs> and then you know one out of five one out of ten would be worth reviewing so there was actually that problem as you pointed out when we were doing it in the garage and I was going through a lot of books there were some that were so bad I threw them in the wood burning stove he <laughs> um, burned a book listen these books were worth, were worth burning um but it was that kind of thing. And then I asked people I knew, which wasn't that many people, and they would put me onto things like Cuisinart rods, which were a way you could teach math to kids, and uh, the Snuggly Baby Carrier, and the Happy Baby Food Grinder, and um, just you know, things that people knew about that were actually pretty good. So I, that first catalog was $5. It was, what, 64 pages. The next one was many more pages, and it was $4, and then we took the price down and then the pages up for until but, I lost my mind. You, <laughs> <laughs> you, but you were brilliant at recruiting a group of section editors who had particular mm -hmm. domain interests, and you know, guys like Lloyd Kahn and, mm -hmm. and uh, Jay Baldwin. Mm -hmm. I think we're, we're coming to the end here, but I, I did want to talk a little bit about what, in a way, what doesn't happen in the book, which is um, hmm. the last kind of 20 years. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. almost 30 years. Yeah, why and, I? And, um, and, you know, actually, there, so there's a, the biographical movie on Stuart um, that um, some of you might have seen when we did the, the early premiere here at the drive-in movie theater during uh, COVID. But I think that they also stopped kind of at the same place that you stop. And, and I think I'd love to hear a little bit well, about yeah, and, like, and my how case, do you decide where to stop? With yeah, how, how do you pick a, you know, a guy who's still doing things and useful things in the world? How do you pick a, an endpoint? And what I decided, I mean, I wanted to separate, I was trying to separate biography from journalism. And uh, hmm. to my mind, um, both uh, the Long Now Project, which was underway and which I did write a little bit about, and Revive and Restore were two things that I couldn't assess. I mean, in your case, it's going to take 10,000 years or at least a couple <laughs> of thousand years. How am I going to pass judgment on it? And Revive and Restore, I think, is a, is a similar thing. And so it was a kind, for me, it was kind of a neat moment. And um, I, you know, I, one of the things I think Stuart, uh, I think, felt a little bit uncomfortable about it in the book. It's he, I end at this meeting in Berkeley where Stuart confronts the environmentalists. <laughs> and um, he said that it... He I felt would say they confronted me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But he went into the lion's den. Well, went I went to the into Brower the lion's Center. den with yeah. joy. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's interesting that... I, 
my take on it and the, the film's take on it is different. Um, I gave Stuart the last word because I thought he actually had an interesting res response to his old friend Peter Coyote stood up and, and sort of went after Stuart. Uh, and Stuart responded. Idiot cell phone came up. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was talking in the general sense, not you in particular, but yes, it did come up. And anyway, so it was a point in time that I thought that I could end. Well, I just want to end this with a thank you. First of all, I want to thank Stuart for, for being so open to both the movie project and your book project and yeah. laying his entire life out in journals. That's a brave yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And, uh, and for hiring me when I was 25 and, <laughs> and to go on this adventure with you. Thank you. Um, and John, for, for writing this book, it, this is, is so, it's so amazingly important to have this kind of stuff, especially when we are contemporaneous with someone, to ask, like, do all yeah. the interviews that yeah. you did? Yeah. Um, and I think, Ke you know, Kevin Kelly, I loved his comment, is he, he now wants you to write a biography of every single one of his friends. <laughs> uh, so you can finally get to know, so thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Sandy. <laughs> thank you, John. <laughs> thank you. This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, become a member, or watch the talks and see our show notes, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talk you heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. Our work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.